Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate that. Um, We are continuing our look at the genealogy that we find in Matthew. And so we left off after um, Rahab, and we're not going to go far. (laughs) We're going to go from verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and then Boaz the son of Rahab, the father of Obed by Ruth, and then Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So Ruth had Obed, whose son is Jesse, who is the father of David. So Ruth is the great-grandmother of David, the great king from whom Messiah must come. So it's important that that be the case, and that's the reason that Matthew tells us this. As I've said before, it's a fascinating thing that Matthew chose to do his genealogy the way he did, focusing, clearly focusing, on the women in that genealogy. And, And there are many women in the genealogy. Every time there's a generation, there's a woman. But we're only told about four of those women. And so what we want to do is we want to look at those women, and we want to spend the time there knowing who they are and why Matthew might have included these particular women in his genealogy, because it's unlike any other genealogy that you'll find in Scripture. Everything in the Old Testament, never, ever, ever does it list who any of the women are. And so here we get this woman, Ruth, and so who is this Ruth character that shows up? Well, if you, you probably, if you listen to me, you probably know that that there's, a, there's an entire book of the Bible dedicated to telling us about this woman, Ruth. In fact, the book is called the Book of Ruth. So it's Joshua, so the conquest of the land, Judges, that period of time before the monarchy is established, when, it, when um, Israel was judged by men who had been raised up within the system, people like Samuel, uh, and Eli, who priests tended to fill that role, but not always. And so that they tended to be those who applied the law of God to the situations and the problems with the people of Israel. So that's the, the judges period. And now we're at near the end of the period of the judges, which ends with Saul becoming the king. So Samuel is the last judge, and Saul is the first king, and, and Saul goes wrong quickly afterwards, but it's a long time before Saul is replaced by David, even though Samuel anoints David long before he actually becomes the king. In fact, he is the king because God has anointed him. He is God's anointed man, God's anointed king, even though Saul is serving in that role for a long period of time and does everything that he can to kill David during that period of time. But because he's the Lord's anointed, he can't be. He's going to have that role no matter what. So what we get then is the great-grandmother of David is this woman named Ruth. And so she's an important personage, and we know she's important. She's important in the kingly line, but she's also important enough that her story is told in the book of Ruth immediately after the book of the Judges, which then becomes, you know, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, which is the transition period from Judges to Kings. So that's what First and Second Samuel are, and then it's followed by First and Second Kings, and then First and Second Chronicles. So we, we get that, that historical information, but Ruth is a person who is important enough that we get an entire book about just her life, because she's such an extraordinary woman. We're going to take a romp through the book of Ruth. We're not going to spend a lot of time there, but, but she's important, and she's important to Matthew, and Matthew would have presumed that the people to whom he wrote this gospel knew exactly who this woman was and why she was so important in the line. She brings something completely different 
into the the heritage of David. She brings this outsider, this Gentile thing in, but she comes into Judaism as an extraordinary convert, a woman who is completely submitted. To this day, if you wanted to convert to Judaism, they follow a model that, that they see here in the first chapter, actually, of the book of Ruth about what they need to do and how a rabbi should should in, discourage you, actually, from coming into the, uh, the Judaism. They, they're obliged to throw up three roadblocks to you, and one of those is, is, is that, um, look, you don't have to do this. You still have a share in the kingdom. Even as a Gentile, you have a share in the kingdom. It's, it's not a problem. You, you just keep the, what's called the Noahide laws. There's only seven of them. They're real simple and straightforward. We're not going to get into it. But you, you keep those, and you're good to go. You get a share in the world to come. You'll have everlasting life then. Um, second, if, you, if they say, no, 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 I still want to convert, then, then they're obliged to say, well, see, the problem is right now you only have to keep a few laws. If you do that, then, then you've got to keep all the laws. You know, you got to keep every single one of them, and so um, that you don't want to do that. No, 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 I'm good to go with that, too. And then finally, the final objection is you're going to be hated. You're, you're going to have to leave everything behind, and you will be hated by everybody on earth. And so that's the, the uh, pattern that they see that's established for them here in the book of Ruth. I'm not sure exactly when that came into Judaism, but, but that's exactly the way that they look at it and the way they treat converts now. And it's because Ruth overcame all the objections of Naomi to, to come and be part of the people of Israel. So what we want to do is we're going to spend two or three days looking at the book of Ruth. I mean, you thought this was going to be a study of the book of Matthew, didn't you? But we're going to spend the time going through the book of Ruth. Uh, this is a romp through the book of Ruth. I'm not going to give you everything. Um, I, I could do a series that would last for weeks, frankly, on, on this little bitty book. So the beginning of the book is this. In the days when the judges ruled, so we're in the period of the judges, there was a famine in the land, and the land is Israel, and, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah— so where's Bethlehem and Judah? Why is that important? Well, that's the city of David, and Judah is the tribe. So Bethlehem is David's city, and Judah is David's tribe. So a man of Bethlehem and Judah, so it's a member of David's tribe, went to, a sojourn, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Well, it, here's the thing that, that's not so apparent, but it's true, and that is, is that this is a horrible thing. It is absolutely a terrible thing that, that he does this. He, he abandons his own people and goes to a place where another god is the god of the land. And it makes—Elimelech means my god is king. That's the man's name. Elimelech is the, the man of Bethlehem in Judah. We're told in the next sentence the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. So his name is my god is king, and her name is Pleasant. And so they go, and they leave their country during a time of famine, and they go to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now, there have been other times, certainly in history, with Abraham as well as Isaac, and the whole family, in fact, in the time of Jacob, Joseph, and all them, where they went down to another place when there was a famine in the land. And so, But once they're in the land— and the people are in the land. Famine is a result then of disobedience. And so there's a problem in, in the land. There's a problem among the people because God's not sending the rains. He's not sending the fruitfulness in the land that he had promised to give. And so what is the problem here, and what do we do about it? Well, the problem is that, that 
there's a there's disobedience and wrong in the land. And Elimelech, in taking his family and leaving the land during that time of famine, is abandoning his people, and he's separating himself from the people of God. And so he is being unrighteous in what he's doing. It's as though he no longer recognizes God's authority, and so he goes over here where they seem to be having uh, a fruitfulness over there, and so I'm going to leave the people of God, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to be with those people. Um, that, so they leave the land of God and go somewhere else, and they go down to this place called Moab. Well, it's important to know what Moab is and what the, what the, um, the attitude of the Israelites and God, actually, is towards these Moabite people. What is the origin story of the Moabite people? Because I've told you before, origin stories are really important. They tell you something about the character of the people. So when we have um, Noah cursing Canaan, who is the son of his son Ham, then, then there's something there. And so there's this sexual immorality that comes out of this thing where he uncovers Ham uncovered the nakedness of his father, and after this, after the after Noah sleeps off his hangover, there's no other way to say it. Um, he, then what happens is he curses Canaan. Well, uncovering the nakedness. If you look at the book of Leviticus, particularly around Leviticus 18 and 19, there's a whole lot of if somebody it's wrong for a person to uncover the nakedness of somebody else. Well, then my nakedness, for instance, would be my wife. If I'm married, to uncover my nakedness would be to sleep with Suzanne. And so that's what's, what seems to have happened here. And so then the, the, what's, what's cursed is the product of that incestuous relationship, and that's his grandson, Canaan. So that, that is an origin story that matters. And so what's the origin story of the Moabites? Well, it begins in Sodom and Gomorrah. It actually begins in Sodom. So remember, when Abraham left his people, he took his nephew Lot with him. And Lot was the son of his brother who had died. So he takes his nephew Lot with him, and, and along the way, they both become great companies of people and great, great wealthy men. And, and Abraham says, we're too big to be together anymore. We need to divide up because we're running into each other. We're tripping all over each other, and, and it's causing conflict. And he says, you take whatever you want. You, you look this way or that way, and you take what you want. Lot chooses the better portion. Abraham says, fine. He's trusting God doesn't matter to him. So he says, okay. And so the lot eventually ends up in Sodom. And when the judgment of Sodom happens, then then angels go. They go down into Sodom, and, and Lot takes them in. The men there uh, of Sodom come and, and yell and scream, hey, send these men out. We want to have sex with them. I mean, it's an inhospitable place, but it's also a sexually immoral place, right? So, so Lot's response is, no, 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 that would be wrong. Here, have my daughters. And no, we don't want your daughters. We want those men. So the men say, look, gut judgment's coming. You get everybody in here to be safe. And so they strike the men of Sodom with blindness. They're not able to find them. Lot then goes and speaks to the um, fiancés, essentially the men to whom his daughters are betrothed, and says, come with me. Here's what's getting ready to happen. They laugh at him, think it's a joke, and, and send him on his way. And so he goes back. The next morning, the angels say, you know, basically it's like the Calampets, you know, get out of here. Get away from here. Uh, California is the place you ought to be. And so they, they leave, and they say, go in there into the hills. And Lot said, no, that's too far. 
I don't think I can make it there, essentially. Um, let me go somewhere else. Let me go to this other place, Gazoar. And so they say, okay, fine, whatever. But his wife then looks back. She's longing for Sodom. It's her home. That's where he met her. It was down there. So, so she longs for Sodom. She, she thinks something good was there. And so she's turned into a pillar of salt. He and his daughters then end up in a cave. The daughters believe, apparently, that the end of the world has come. And so it's, it's essentially like the time of Noah, right? So now they're going to have to repopulate the earth. Well, there's only one man as far as they know. And so they get dad drunk, same as what happened with Noah. They get dad drunk, and each one in turn sleeps with him, gets pregnant, and has a child. One of those children is called Moab. As I said, origin stories are important. The reason Canaan is cursed, because he's the product of an incestuous relationship, they think the same thing about the Moabites. And the Moabites are just on the edge of the land. And in fact, one of the last scenes in the book of Deuteronomy is when they are at the edge of the land, and I'm sorry, numbers, and that Balaam, the prophet, the one who, who to whom his donkey speaks, Balak is the king of Moab, and so he sees these Israelites encamp there, and he, he is threatened by them, even though they're not coming to him because that's not part of the land. So he sends the prophet Balaam out to curse them, and Balaam won't do it because God won't allow it. And so those are the Moabites. Well, the Moabites are considered to be a, a deeply immoral people, and so the Israelites are actually forbidden to intermarry with Moabites, specifically the Moabites, <laughs> are are, are forbidden as, as marital partners. And so the book of Ruth actually brings about a change in the way they understand the prohibition. Because she is David's great-grandmother, then, then what they said is, well, God allowed it. God's the one who made this happen. It's an important part of our heritage and our history. Therefore, it must not just mean we're not allowed to intermarry with Moabites. It must mean that our women are not allowed to marry Moabite, whim, Moabite men because God allowed it here with Ruth. So that's the, that's the backdrop of the origin story for the Moabites. And so they are, they are a detestable and, and prohibited people, and Elimelech chooses to go there. As I said, it's right on the edge of the land, so it's just sort of going next door. So they cross the border and they go into Moab of all places. So not only has he left his own people and left them in a time of famine and want and need, and the Jewish people through the Talmud considered that Elimelech was a leader of the people in that area. And so when he left, it was a, it was a double sin, essentially, because he, he magnified it as a leader of the people. You're not supposed to leave your people behind, but he did. Whether he is or not is, is sort of immaterial in some ways because his sin is bad enough when he leaves. His proclamation, my God is king, he goes to the Moabites, and they're looking at him and thinking, really, you're God's king and you're here, huh? Why are you here? Because there's a famine where you are, right? Yeah, your God must not be all that in a bag of chips, right? He, he can't be all that if you're here because there's a famine there. And so he would have been a little bit suspect too. And, and so does God bring judgment on, on Elimelech for doing this? And the answer is yes, he does. So what we see is, is that he goes down, he takes his wife Naomi and the, and the two boys, and the boys' names are Machlon and Kilion. This is in verse 2. We're, we're moving kind of slow, but it'll pick up, I promise. So the, he takes those boys down. Well, here's the other thing. So he's my God is king. Naomi is pleasant. That's what her name means. They have these two boys, Machlon and Kilion. What do their names mean? Right? Machlon means sickness. And Kilion means wasting. 
Not exactly hopeful kind of names, right? I mean, you, you don't name your kids those kinds of things typically. But, but it, it, again, it's an origin story for these two. They, they, those are their names. And it says they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They were from the, the clan of Ephrathah. So in Bethlehem, in Judah, the tribe, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. So they were going to sojourn there, but what we're told is they remained there. So they didn't just go for a season of time. They essentially did what Lot did. They settled there. They established themselves there in Moab. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with two sons. These took Moabite wives. We're already headed in the wrong direction, but it's the same kind of story as Lot. His children are going to take Sodomite husbands. Here, Malon, Machlon, and Kilion take Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Machlon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So Naomi is completely bereft. She is a widow and, and, and never expected to be a widow. She's lost everything. She's lost her family. She's lost everything. Down in Moab. Didn't go well. God judged what happened there. And that's the so I want you to understand a principle of, of Jewish interpretation of Scripture. So they in those five verses, we're told what seems like a very little bit of information. And so what they what they understand about the way to interpret Scripture is okay, so there's a little bit of information. So how do we dig deeper? And figure this out. And that's how they come up with the idea that Elimelech was a leader. Because God judged him so harshly in leaving and going to Moab. So they, they begin to see all these other things. And they, they think so highly of Elimelech otherwise, other than this mistake that he makes in going here. And it's a settled sin. Because they go and they remain there. But they, but they think, well, these people are Israelites. So they would have only attracted the best of the women of Moab. And, and so they come up with the idea that Orpah and Ruth are actually sisters, and their father was the king. Because Israelites, even if they're in Moab, wouldn't settle for anything less. So I'm not telling you that that's true. I'm telling you that is extra biblical, but it's, they look at it that way. That's how they get to the place where when you read Midrash or if you read in the Talmud, that's how you're going to see it, and that's why. That's the interpretive key for the way they understand Scripture. It's probably as 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 concise a little example as I could possibly give you. In those five verses, that's how much they see in that. Every single word matters. The fact that they remained there matters. The, everything about their names matters. And, and every bit of this is, is teased out, and that's how they get some of the things that they get. So I don't criticize this because I, re, I believe they're actually trying to apply real principles, and they take the Word of God so seriously that not just every word, but every letter actually matters. Every, as Jesus says, jot and tittle, those are more than letters. Those are the little marks over and under the letters. Jesus says all of it matters. And so then what do we get? Okay, so then we get, Naomi says, I'm going back home. I, I don't have any family left here. The, the girls didn't have children by my sons, and so I'm going to head back home. And she tells the girls that, and, and they beg her not to go. They said, no, 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 we're going to go with you. 
And, and she says, no, return to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead, my sons, and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. So she kissed him and lifted up their, they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we'll return with you to your people. She's trying to discourage them. Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? I'm an old woman. I'm not going to have any more children to replace those sons. Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter for me for your sake. And she's going to tell, that's what she's going to say, exceedingly bitter for me uh, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's going to tell them when she goes back to Bethlehem that her name is no longer Naomi, which means pleasant. It's now going to be Mara, which means bitter. Then they lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother, but Ruth clung to her. We're going to stop there today because that's enough for one day. But, but So Orpah says, you know, you're right. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm going to head back home. And Ruth says, no, I'm going to stay with you. There, there's a, a, a tradition within Judaism about Orpah that is not pleasant. Basically, what they say is she wanted a man so badly, she was willing to essentially become a prostitute. And she then ultimately, they say, becomes the the mother of Goliath. It's a fascinating thing. So, So Orpah becomes the mother of Goliath, while Ruth becomes the great grandmother of the one who will kill that Philistine champion. Just saying. It's an interesting way of looking at things. So we'll come back tomorrow and we'll talk a little bit more about Ruth.